0: This is the Thoughts From a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Today, I am interviewing Jess McHugh about Cannon. Jess is a writer and researcher whose work has appeared across a variety of national and international publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Nation, Time, the Paris Review, the Guardian, and the New Republic, among others. She has reported stories from four continents on a range of cultural and historical topics, from present-day Liverpool punks to the history of 1960s activists in Greenwich Village. I absolutely loved Americanon, and it is one of my July Buzz Reads top five picks. It was fascinating to me to speak with Jess about it, and I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis.
0: Welcome, Jess. How are you today? I'm good. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. I'm so happy you're here too. As soon as I heard about your book, I thought that is a book I absolutely have to read. And I just loved it. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. I can't wait to hear more about how you came up with it, your research, everything.
1: Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that.
0: Well, and I saw this morning in an email that Bookpage named it one of the top 10 books of June.
1: Yes, I was so honored. They wrote some really kind things about it, which means a lot to me.
0: They really did. As we start out, why don't you tell me a little bit about Americanon?
1: Sure. So the idea behind Americanon was that I was curious to think about American identity in terms of this sort of alternate canon of books. You know, we, we think of Canon as maybe, you know Huckleberry Finn or Uncle Tom's Cabin. But I wanted to imagine if you were an average American in 1850 or 1950 and you only had a few books, those were maybe more likely instructional books, how-to books, cookbooks, almanacs, dictionaries. So this, the, the premise behind Americanon was what were those few books that you owned in any given era and what did they teach you about the American story and about your place in American society? And so the, the kind of thesis that I developed over time was that through generations of rereading and rereading, we can really locate a lot of the kind of the birth of certain identities and the birth of certain mythologies that we have about ourselves as a nation.
0: I guess that's what really resonated with me was some of these ideas, particularly about gender and females in the home, the Betty Mm -hmm. Crocker, and some of those earlier ones I was not as familiar with. But the idea of how some of these gender roles became cemented in our culture was particularly fascinating to me, especially after living through the last year and my husband being home some of the time, my three children being home, and just still where the balance of Chores, falls, and what happens in the home and everything—I just really was fascinated by that portion of it, particularly, but all of it. It was so interesting.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, for for me too. I had been less familiar with—they're called essentially domestic manuals, but they were they were called sometimes housewifery books. And it's this this interesting mix of etiquette and patriotism and cooking. But the notion was kind of for the first time that you see American women depicted on the page. In a very central way in these, these didactic books, the notion is that they're leading the nation through their role in the home, through the way that they even, you know, clean their toilets and, and dress their children. And, and I think that that's fascinating to me because we might not think of it quite in those strong of terms, but to a certain extent, a lot of the child rearing does still fall to women and, and the way that children look and are raised is sometimes still, I think, seen as a reflection of the mother more than anyone else.
0: I agree. I was so curious about how you decided on which 13 books to include.
1: Sure. So it was it was really quite a process. I will say I took it took about a year to decide out of, you know, 3 3 years of writing and researching. And because I wanted to I wanted to choose books that that kind of took the pulse of the nation at any given moment or really expressed some kind of broader ideological trend, I tried to rely pretty heavily on on the data. So I was looking at the numbers of books sold, their status of bestsellers, usually in the kind of tens of millions range. And more into the, the 20th century, I would also look at lists such as, you know, the New York Times, Publishers Weekly, Library of Congress did a, a series on a hundred books that shaped, shaped America. And then I also did uh, research and, and interviews with about, I would say probably a hundred academics from different disciplines, you know, history of publishing, history of science to ask them. You know which books spurred a change in thought, which books struck a chord. So it was certainly a process.
0: It must have been. I was just completely fascinated by that part of it. And I know you talked some about it in your introduction, but I was just curious as you were working your way through, did you want to do 13 because of 13 colonies or did you just reach the number that you felt were the right number or how did that part work?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It's kind of funny, because I love the idea that it did turn into 13. And and I love the the kind of connection to 13 colonies. And I know 13 is seen as an unlucky number, but I sort of love it. Essentially, what had happened was initially, I was looking to do 10. I thought 10 is a nice round number. But I had just taken so many on and off the list that I had trouble getting rid of any of them. And, and it just landed at 13.
0: That's what my end of year favorite book lists are always like. (laughs) I I make this list and, you know, as the year goes on, they go on and off. And then I usually reach, I am always shooting for 10. And then I usually reach like 11, 12, 13. And I'm like, I just can't take another one off. So I understand that. But obviously you were doing a lot more research and there was a lot more data going into yours. Mine's just more, okay, I loved all of these books equally. But I can understand where you sort of reach a point. You've read them all. You're thinking, well, I can't take this one off now. Right. And just, yeah, I, I had so much enthusiasm for the research and,
1: and for all of that kind of archival work that it is. it feels like you're little babies. You don't want to let anyone go.
0: Exactly. You're like, I've devoted all this time to them now. The part that I was really fascinated by was Emily Post because I grew up owning a copy of that book and I've used it many, many times. Thank you notes. And, you know, when someone passes away, a variety of things. But I had no idea about her husband and being the subject of all that notoriety and then being divorced. And maybe it all says that in the beginning of the book and I've just never focused on it. But I didn't really know her personal story at all. Yes, you know, it's it's
1: funny you bring that up because she was one of my favorite chapters to write, because similarly I had grown up, you know, learning Emily Post's etiquette and, and all of that that and I had associated her with a certain very kind of old-fashioned, stodgy life. And I was so shocked to discover that the beginning of her career as a writer came out of, as you mentioned, her husband was caught up in this affair that he was having with a showgirl and he was extorted by a tabloid and it ended up in this really highly public blackmail legal fight in court. And she was so embarrassed by this that she divorced him in 1906, which was not done at all. And so she needed to make money, which is why she started writing novels and then eventually wrote etiquette. But I just, I found it so fascinating that, that the woman who wrote the rules really came out of scandal and Almost I see it as wanting to correct the, the errors of etiquette, shall we say, of those around her.
0: I agree. I think that's exactly why it surprised me so much, because I expected her to be this very, like you said, stodgy, kind of set-in-her-ways woman who was married with children. So it was just so funny to me that that her life was so different than I expected it to be. And that her, was it great-great-grandchildren still run the, the company that puts out the book? Yes, I believe it is great, great. I can't remember how many generations
1: removed. But yes, her, her descendants, Lizzie and Daniel run run this institute now. And they were fascinating to me because they're they are also so modern. I went in there, you know, fearing that I was going to have incorrect teacup placement, but they write, write books about pot etiquette and, and all sorts of things now. So it's just things have, have really changed over there and evolved over time.
0: The other thing I loved was Merriam-Webster and how you pointed out how much fun they ended up being on social media when the election in 2016 happened, because I followed all that and just thought it was so clever and so much fun. And I was really glad that you had incorporated that into your book.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Merriam-Webster is kind of what started it all, as many journalists do. I spend way too much time on Twitter. And so I noticed when Merriam-Webster kind of was having this very sassy Twitter presence, correcting especially politicians' use of language and the meanings of words that maybe strike us as simple, such as fact or unprecedented or things like that. And so it led into this longer investigation. That I was so surprised to learn that the founding author of Webster's Dictionary back in the 19th century was this born-again Christian nationalist who really believed that a new language could galvanize an original and new and superior American identity, which I just found so fascinating. And, and in some ways at odds with the way that they exist now in the world. And, and that kind of made me all the more interested.
0: Absolutely at odds with the way they exist today. I think I found that really interesting. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about that chapter was there's kind of two things that I think the dictionary does. One is make uniform spelling, which I think is very important because when you go back and try to read some of those earlier documents before there was more uniform spelling, sometimes you're like, what are they saying? You know, it takes a while. Oh, yes. So I, that part I'm all for. And so I've always thought of the dictionary as sort of that being its primary purpose, which I guess it really isn't. It's more to define the words and come up with what they mean and, and who they're going to mean that for. So it just made me really rethink the way I viewed the dictionary. I guess that's sort of silly, but that's just, you know, as I read that chapter I was thinking, "Huh." So I guess there are kind of two different parts of that.
1: Definitely, and I really think there are so many and I I had similarly thought it's just for spelling. That was how I treated it growing up, and then later for for, you know, the the meanings of words, but the more I researched it, the more I realized that that the dictionary has served so many different purposes over history. It used to be almost kind of a, a self-help book in terms of if you could educate yourself with a dictionary or with a speller and you could be seen as educated, you could be more socially mobile by labeling words as slang or non-standard. It would teach you, you know, what was appropriate for certain situations. And, and now, as I mentioned in the, the chapter, people use the dictionary almost as a public philosopher, which is to say in times of crisis, a lot of people, for instance, will look up the word surreal. That's been a trend in Merriam-Webster's online dictionary that after 9-11, or after the Sandy Hook shooting, that's the top word. And, and so you see that people are turning to the dictionary for something much deeper than words. They're looking for for answers to, to kind of some, some more philosophical questions.
0: And as new words come in, you know, it's so interesting to see kind of the top 10 words that are added every year, you know, in the past year, social distancing, and, you mm. know, some of these type of things that we haven't ever, or at least I had never really been familiar with before. So it, it was very thought provoking, and I've I've thought a lot about that section since I finished it.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I, I agree. It's the the dictionary is is fascinating because it is such a living object in certain ways, and it does, as you say, the words that it adds in we can sometimes speak to our moment and and make us think about exactly you know things we had never thought about two years ago. I don't. If you would ask me what social distancing was, I don't think I would have been able to give you a definition.
0: I'm not sure I'd ever heard the term, and if I had, I guess it had just gone in one ear and out the other. But did you have a favorite of the books that you included? That's
1: a great question. They're so, there I, I like them all for different reasons. I think even the, the authors are the, the ones that I was less familiar with or had some kind of negative preconception about. I sort of changed my mind. Uh, I would say Emily Post is up there. I would also say Dale Carnegie is up there because he is, he wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People. And he was one of those authors that I, I had associated with a certain kind of, uh, shall we say, a business major or people who are working in, in corporate structures. And I had always had kind of a negative preconception about his book that it was maybe manipulative and a little bit too much about salesmanship. But the more that I learned about him as a person growing up dirt poor in Missouri at the turn of the 20th century and having all of these issues of self-esteem and really intense anxiety and finding his way out of this kind of hole of debt and desperation through confidence and public speaking. It made me understand him and his book in a much different and I would say more open-hearted light, which is to say that he, he really seems to be offering a salve for people who similarly feel discomfort or distress in their lives and need something to hold on to. And it, and it just, it, it gave me some more grace with Dale Carnegie.
0: And you know, the funny thing about that book is I've heard that title forever but I didn't realize he had written it and I didn't realize that it was published in 1936. Like I, w- I kind of did a double take when I started on that chapter.
1: Right, yeah, I think I had associated it with the 1980s, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. And yeah, and, and, but it had really come out of the Great Depression and I would argue in, in many ways was uh, a product of the, the kind of the lack and the desperation and the trying to make something out of nothing of the 1930s.
0: And I was not familiar until a couple of years ago with the idea that Betty Crocker wasn't really a person, and I did learn that some fiction book I read, and I was racking my brain as I read yours to think, where did I read that? And that her cookbook was more than just a cookbook, which you talk about, but also talked about kind of the common foods that Americans eat, and different tools to use, and even things about the home. And so I enjoyed reading that part of your book because it kind of reiterated what I'd learned in whatever nameless book it is that I cannot remember from a couple of years. No I've ago.
1: been there many times with books and. Yeah, she was some fascinating because I had just assumed because I had grown up with the Fannie Farmer cookbook as well that she was a, I had assumed she was a real person, and I was so surprised to learn that she not only was not a real person but was a total accident. You know, in the 1920s, they had run this ad for flour and said, you know, if you uh, if you do this puzzle and send it in, you'll get a pin cushion. And they discovered that all of these women also sent in letters about what was wrong with their cakes and why their dough was lumpy. And all of the men in the advertising department were kind of taken aback, like. What is this? What's happening? And so they decided they would just invent this new name, Betty, because they thought it sounded wholesome and, and Crocker for a recently retired executive. And so they had one of their secretaries sign, sign the letters. And that is sort of how Betty Crocker was born. And, and that was just fascinating to me that this woman who then would be named the second most influential person after Eleanor Roosevelt in the forties is in fact this fiction who is being used to sell, sell flour among many other things.
0: And how well they kept that deception for so long. You know, all the women that would write the letters and answer the phones and all of it. It truly is a fascinating story. It reminds me of Nancy Drew. Like, I didn't know Carolyn Keene wasn't a real person. And I mean, probably it's now been like 15 years. But I always grew up thinking, you know, she was the one writing all of those books. And in the end, not at all. It was just a bunch of different people. I'm learning this right now. I had no idea. I grew up reading those and I had no idea. Yeah, it's the same kind of idea that, but I think it was a publishing house and they did it for the Hardy Boys and for Nancy Drew. And they just hired people, ghostwriters, and they would just gin them out and all under those names. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Wow, that is really fascinating. Well, what do you hope your readers take away from the book?
1: Uh, I hope that readers take away from this, a delight in the mundane, which is something that I got out of the research And this idea that as someone who loves books and and grew up reading so many different novels and and poetry and all that, that there is so much wisdom and depth and richness to be found in some of these more humble books that we take for granted, such as a cookbook or an almanac or a dictionary. So that's one thing. I would also say the second thing is I would love for readers to think about the foundations of our culture in, in, in a slightly different way. And that's kind of the challenge that I pose to the reader a little bit. I think we like to think that our values or our beliefs are a sort of natural evolution of right and wrong ideas over time. But I kind of put forward the argument that a lot of what we come to believe is the product of happenstance or chaos or, you know, a few people who have quite specific ideas about what we should believe and that it's interesting to look at kind of a a road from author to text to culture.
0: I thought you really made that point with the McGuffey readers. And I was not at all familiar with the McGuffey readers, but I thought it was interesting your points there talk about that a lot of the ideas, things that are taught in education come from those, and I wasn't even familiar with them.
1: Yes, neither neither was I until I began research for the book. The McGuffey readers, yeah, they came out of Ohio in 1836 and 1837 and were essentially used both for for early public schooling and for homeschooling at in kind of the early uh, or I would just say mid 19th century, but all the way through the 20th century. And what's fascinating about them is that they educated something like 122 million Americans, minimum, if not more. And they really are the product of one man, William Holmes McGuffey, who was this this pretty intense Presbyterian minister who thought that dancing was a sin, and he once expelled so many students that there was only one senior to graduate come springtime. <laughs> and so his books in in many ways are not as extreme as as he was they are especially given the era and given what came before them fairly fairly secular and build a fairly wide tent but I think it's fascinating that the book that taught more Americans how to read than any other book was written by by quite an
0: extreme man and someone that no one's ever heard of I mean some people have heard of them, but you and I are both big readers and we're not familiar with these until you were doing your research and I was reading your book.
1: Right. Yeah, that, that was what was so surprising to me. Uh, I, it wasn't even, oh, that sounds vaguely familiar. The name McGuffey I had absolutely no familiar, familiarity with until I began this research. And I think it does speak to just how much of our culture has been built by people who whom we no longer learn about or have never learned about. Uh, so I think that that's that's one of the things that really guided me in this.
0: I did think that was interesting that you could take one person's take on something and then it ends up disseminated across a lot of the country. And I think you make this point very well, you know, several times to kind of help keep it fresh that people didn't own many books. So if you only had two or three books on your shelf, and one of them was the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin or the McGuffey reader or the one of the domestic books, you're reading it and you're rereading it. And it's really sinking in and it's, spread to so many different people. So you just can't even quantify the effects really.
1: Yes, exactly. And that's why I wanted to focus on these books, these kind of how-to simple, not expensive books, because they did have this outsize influence on so many people, especially in the 18th and the 19th centuries. I think about a book such as the Old Farmer's Almanac or really any almanac, I remember coming across the statistic that something like 40% of New England homes in the late 18th century didn't own a single book, including a Bible. But many of them would have an almanac. And then later, they would have maybe an almanac and Webster's book or an almanac and say the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. So as you say, when you only have a few books, they become more precious to you. But I also think their influence on your your pattern of thinking has more of an outsized effect than when we read so many books, which I love, and I, w- I would not want us to read fewer, but I think it, it certainly changes the way that people interact with books and the way that books interact with people.
0: For sure it does. And I think it's nice that you pointed that out because I think, you know, in this day and age, we can't even have any concept of that. I mean, you know, there are books piled everywhere in my house, and we do read so many. And so each one, I learn something from it, or there's some effect. But if there's something in there that maybe isn't accurate, or could be offensive to some, I'm most likely countering that with something else that I read. But if instead you own one book or two books, and you're just pulling it down and reading it when you're bored or reading it because it's the almanac and you want to know the weather or about a religion or whatever it is, then yes, it's going to completely be shaping what you're thinking and what you consider to be correct.
1: Exactly. And I think especially with these books, which are often reference texts of some kind, they take on their own kind of authority because like you said, if, if you come across something in a book, say a nonfiction book now that doesn't feel quite, quite right, you can either dismiss it or you can Google it and see, is this true? Is this not true? Whereas I think with, with reference texts, even now with something like the dictionary, we're not going to fact check the dictionary. We just sort of take it on its, on its face level and accept it as true. And I think that that was even truer when you had fewer books and fewer access to
0: other types of information. I definitely think so. Well, I'm fascinated with both your title and your cover. I'm a huge cover person, (laughs) and I just think your cover is outstanding. I love it. But I want to hear all about how you came up with the title and and then the process for getting this cover to look like it does now.
1: Yes, great question. So the title is actually thanks to my agent. Uh, She helped me come up with that. I had many titles over the years. My working title, she told me, was a bit too novelly. My working title was something like "The Secret History of the American Bookshelf," and then I uh, used to call it for a while "American Bibles." But uh, I was kind of thinking about it in the terms of of secular Bibles, so to speak, of kind of guides to daily life. And we ended up coming up with this title, "American," because, as I said earlier, I really liked this idea that we could understand something about American culture or the American people, in given eras throughout history by understanding these books as constituting a kind of alternative canon so that was how how that came about and it's i think it's such a fun fun title and then the cover i i feel like i can't take any credit for it because we have this this wonderful designer uh via and i hope i'm pronouncing her name correctly but i love it because it's it's this sort of you know, as you can see, it's kind of a disjointed American flag. And she's incredible because what she did is the, the each of the strips that make up the stripes of the American flag actually come from books that I write about within right. Americanon. And so it's just incredible. And I, I, what I really love about the design she came up with is that it does, it feels punchy and modern, but it also feels kind of vintage and like it could have come out at an earlier time. So I just, I thought she captured the spirit of the book so perfectly.
0: I agree completely. So I'm a huge cover person, like I'd love to talk about them and see whether they match up with the story. So it caught my attention when the information was first sent to me and I was like, oh, what a great cover. And then as soon as I was finished reading, I always like to go back and say, okay, now that I've read the book, does the cover really represent the book? And I think it totally does. And I think it everything you just said, that it kind of looks vintage, but it also looks modern with the kind of the strips going different ways. And then also the parts of the book. I just thought that was so, so clever.
1: Yes, I was I was blown away. And I think we barely tweaked it from the time she first sent it to me because I thought she just hit the nail on the head so well. And yeah, I was just just so lucky and thrilled with how it came out.
0: Well, are you working on anything at the present that you would like to tell me about?
1: Yes. So I'm, I'm still not sure. I would love to write a second book at some point, but I'm not quite sure what that will be. I'm working on a feature story about the preservation of wild Mustangs. So this has been kind of something in the works for a while. I'm fascinated with, with wild horses. And th- what's, what's interesting now is that they've kind of become overpopulated in the West because there's no natural predator for a Mustang and They're protected by U.S. law, and there's kind of building tensions between ranchers and wild horse folks because they can trample grazing lands. And so I'm focusing on this specific farm in upstate New York that gets mustangs from the Bureau of Land Management out west, and they use them for this program that helps treat combat veterans with treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder. And what they do is they actually have veterans train Mustangs and it, and it kind of helps both the human and the horse in that it serves as this kind of equine therapy that has been proven to be quite successful. While at the same time, the horses that they train can then be adopted out as any other horse, which helps with this overpopulation issue. So I'm really excited about
0: that. Oh, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Well, I cannot wait to read it when it makes its way out into the world.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it should be fun. I think every, I'm so fascinated by different symbols of you know, American identity and, and different beliefs. So that's, that's it kind of folds all into it.
0: When you were first seeing horses, I was thinking of the ones off of like Chincoteague and all of those, those horses that um, kind of yeah. roam free off the coast, but they're not Mustangs. I don't think.
1: I don't think so. They're, they're those, I'm not sure what exactly they are, but I, I, yeah, I'm familiar. Those are great too.
0: Well, good. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked.
1: Sure. Well, I think there's so many great books now and also for the summer recently, uh, I, I have been reading this, this memoir by Lily Danziger called Negative Space. And it's, it's this really fascinating kind of mix of memoir and also kind of art history. Essentially her, her father was this artist in the East Village and part of this kind of art movement happening at the time. And he died of a heroin overdose when she was young. And she's kind of almost going back as if a detective through his life and their life together. And I, it's 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 just a very a very poignant book that draws on on family and memory and and living with kind of the remnants of his life. So that's one. The other one is called An Ordinary Age, and that came out recently by Rainsford Stoffer. And it, I've been thinking about it a lot because I've I've been feeling for especially journalists and writers who are graduating school now and feeling both the the normal, so to speak pressures of of being a young person and and trying to figure out what your place is in the world, plus all of the additional, you know, economic and and other pressures of coming of age during COVID-19. And so her book is really an exploration of of the pressure that we put on young people to have it all figured out and also the ways that that things are shifting in terms of our conception of what is what is the age to be doing a certain thing, what is the age to be figuring out what you are and, and who you are and and so that's that's been a great book. And then the last one, which hasn't come out but is coming out uh next week and I'm so excited about, is called Life on the Line and it's by Emma Goldberg. And it is a book, uh she's a, a New York Times reporter and so it's a book that's looking at medical students who accelerated their studies so that they could graduate early and work on the front lines of uh, COVID hospitals. And I think it just looks like this very fast paced, interesting look at these people who were really ready to kind of get out there and help. And I'm, I'm always kind of drawn to the helpers, so to speak, in any crisis. So that's a book I'm really looking forward to.
0: Well, I sadly, I hate to even say this, don't know a single one of these and oh, so wow. have to, I know. And that awful, I'm like, oh my gosh, I usually feel like I can at least be like, oh yes, I know that one of one of them, but they all sound fabulous. And the middle one, I really want to track down because I have a daughter in college and a daughter that will be starting college. And I talk with them regularly because people are always saying, well, what is it you want to do? And what are you planning to major in? And I tell them, you've got so much time. And these days, people change their jobs so frequently anyway. It's not the same as it used to be when you went to work for Exxon and you worked for Exxon your whole career, or you were a lawyer and you stayed a lawyer the whole time. People seem to really shift a lot now. So I'd love to read that because I feel like it would be tied in with kind of trying to help them feel better about where they are. And then that last one sounds really interesting. I am so curious to start seeing COVID books come out.
1: Yes, me too. And yeah, to go back to what you're saying, I think it's I think it's a great book especially as a kind of college graduation book because it really does help kind of deal with a lot of those anxieties. And yeah, it is it is strange because I do feel especially living in France where we were still under lockdown, I still feel as if we are amid the pandemic and so it is it's kind of surreal to see books about COVID coming out already.
0: Well, and it must be surreal for you because well I don't know what it's like in in Boston right now, but like here in Texas, I'm not sure half the time you'd even realize there had been a pandemic. I mean, people are wearing masks some But things are somewhat back to normal.
1: Yes. It was, it was very strange because I left, when I left Paris a week ago, we had just come out of the lockdown. We were in a lockdown essentially since September. There had been no restaurants. It was just grocery stores open and we had a very strict 7 PM curfew that was very much enforced by the police. And so it was strange to go from, you know, just going to the grocery store, working, going for my nightly jog. So coming back to Massachusetts, where you could go in and get a coffee without wearing a mask, I hadn't been inside a restaurant or even eaten outdoors since the summer. So it's, it's been it's been very strange.
0: Definitely a shock. I don't know where France is on the vaccination process. Like, are they like we are here? Or is it rolled out slower?
1: No, yeah, they were, there was a lot of kind of bureaucratic issues in rolling it out. So I I don't know the exact numbers, but they're, they're fairly low. I would say definitely less than 50%, probably closer to 25%, maybe even less.
0: So that's probably some of it too, because I definitely feel like once everybody here was vaccinated, or most people are vaccinated that I know, that things began to open up a lot more. And that was several months ago.
1: For sure. I think that's a huge part of it.
0: Well, I have absolutely loved speaking with you, Jess. I loved your book. I just think it's so fascinating. I hope every single American will read it because I really think it's very thought provoking and will make people think more about some of their own beliefs and everything. So thank you. And thank you for taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It's really an honor. I appreciate that so
0: much. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Jess's book can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.